Coming up this week on the Thomas Jefferson Hour, in the spirit of Thanksgiving, we talk to three of our old friends from the Thomas Jefferson Hour. Bo Wright of Lynchburg, Virginia, Brad Crisler of Nashville, Tennessee, and Pat Brodowski, the former head gardener at Monticello, today at the Inn at Meander in Orange County, Virginia. Pat Brodowski, the award-winning Pat Brodowski. And I guess we could say award-winning about all three of them, and they're dear friends to the Jefferson Hour. It was great to reconnect with them. It's always interesting to hear from Pat, who really has the greenest thumb of anyone that I've ever met. And Brad Crisler, extremely successful national musician. And of course, Bo Wright, now Vice Mayor of Lynchburg, Virginia. Please join us for all that and more on this week's Thomas Jefferson Hour. Good day, citizens, and welcome to What Would Jefferson Do? Our weekly opportunity to discuss current American events with President Thomas Jefferson. And good day to you, Mr. President. Good day to you, citizen. Sir, we recently received an inquiry from a listener of yours, uh, Ricardo Cardellino, and he was asking about what your motivation was when composing a Bible without reference to the divinity of Jesus. And I bring this up because a former national security advisor recently in public called for a single religion in America, saying, if we are going to have one nation under God, which we must, we must have one religion. I know this must uh, be cause for comment from you, sir. There are two elements to your question. I'll take the latter one first. I am 100% opposed to the idea of one religion for the people of the United States. Uh, The glory of America is that it became a welcoming ground for people from all faiths, all ethnicities, all races, all countries of origin, all economic status, and we have blended them uh, in a consensus to govern ourselves, to have more freedom than any people uh, have had who ever lived in the world, and one of the first things we did because we were children of the Enlightenment was to separate church and state, and in fact, possibly my proudest achievement came in 1786 uh, when the Virginia Statute for Religious Liberty was passed into law in Virginia, thanks largely to the, to the floor work of my friend James Madison, and it disestablished the Church of England in Virginia, and it said that people are free to worship any god they please whether it's one God or 20 or none at all, without civil reward and without civil penalty. And I know no reason why matters of this intimacy, this personal consciousness, should be put into the hands of government. Uh, America can be a homeland of Muslims and Jews and Native Americans who believe in the Great Spirit or the Manitou or the Wakhan. It is the home of Methodists and Lutherans and Presbyterians and Moravians and Anabaptists, and that's one of the glories of America. Or put it another way, in this Our Happy Republic, we took religion, which has been the source of endless wars in Europe, massacres, religious wars that lasted for 30, 40, or 100 years, beheadings, burnings at the stake, torture. We took that volatile and very controverted subject of religion and religious doctrine and simply took it off the table. We said, that's not what we're going to fight about in America. 
I believe that if America had not followed that path, we would be a lesser country, there would have been more division in our history, and there might have been acts of religious violence of the sort that are so common in the history of Europe. Back to Mr. Cardellino's question, uh, what was your motivation in, in writing this Bible, and why did you keep it private? First of all, Jesus is extremely important. I believe that he was a historical personage, that he lived about the time that he is said to have lived. I think that the Bible, as we inherit it, is a distorted and in some ways convoluted document. I don't personally think that Jesus was the Son of God. I'm a Unitarian rather than a Trinitarian. And so when I was asked by a a friend who was a Unitarian, Joseph Priestley, to consider uh, making my own version of the New Testament, not for publication, but merely as a religious and intellectual exercise, I decided to do it. And in the course of a a week or two in the White House, when I was first president, I did it. And the result was a pamphlet of about 48 pages at at facts that can be regarded as as rational and human. And then what I called some of his more clear-headed sayings. I did that really just to help me isolate the historical Jesus from the, the crusts and incrustations and interpolations. And uh, I did not publish it because I didn't want to offend. And I knew that even taking on this very private project would be likely to offend evangelicals. And I, I saw no reason to stir up that kind of controversy unnecessarily. Thank you very much, Mr. Jefferson. You are most welcome, sir. Good day, citizens, and welcome to the Thomas Jefferson Hour, your weekly conversation with or about President Thomas Jefferson. This week, we're going to have a conversation with some friends of the Thomas Jefferson Hour. I'm your host, David Swenson, joined by the creator of the Thomas Jefferson Hour, Mr. Clay Jenkinson, and also joined by Mr. Bo Wright, who we have not talked to in quite a while. Bo is a third-generation Lynchburg native and eighth-generation Central Virginian. He currently serves as the Director of Operations for Protect Democracy. And prior to this, from 2011 to 2017, he served in numerous capacities in the White House under President Obama, including the Senior Deputy Director of Operations and Director for Finance. Do I have all that about correct, Bo? Yeah, it's very generous of you to, to read my resume. That, that sounds about right. And uh, currently, you are vice mayor of Lynchburg. That's accurate. I'm, I'm vice mayor for the city of Lynchburg until uh, December 31st, 2022. Well, welcome back to the Thomas Jefferson Hour. We haven't talked to you in quite a while, and 
We're recording this the week of Thanksgiving, and Clay suggested, and I agreed, it was time we caught up with some of our friends. So we're starting with you. What's new in Lynchburg <laughs> and, 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 and Thanksgiving week in Lynchburg? Well, it's so good to talk with both of you. Uh, it's been a long time, but as an avid Thomas Jefferson Hour listener, um, I just want to thank you and congratulate you on a, on a string of just really wonderful shows um, over the past several months. So, so thank you. Um, and and I'm I'm doing well. Lynchburg is doing well. We've had a really beautiful autumn here in Central Virginia. Um, it's sort of in full swing. We had colors this year that were. Um, really dramatic um, and some of the best we've had in, in recent years. And so now we're gearing up for Thanksgiving and the holidays. And I, for one, am really excited about Christmas. I have three siblings uh, and they all have families. And so they're going all, they're all going to be coming home uh, to Lynchburg uh, for Christmas. So that's, that's exciting. And I'm, I'm looking forward to it. Bo, the last time we talked with you was on the other side of about $5 trillion worth of federal spending. When you reflect on that, that we're now spending money with trillions as the baseline, and that this whole democratic agenda, which looks as if it's going to make its way successfully through Congress, is effectively an omnibus bill that calls itself Build Back Better or an infrastructure bill. I feel certain that Thomas Jefferson would be deeply alarmed, first at the staggering amount of money that's being contemplated here, but perhaps even more by the fact that a bill like this becomes a grab bag for a vast number of different initiatives and projects that wind up passing under the aegis of a single omnibus bill. What do you make of all this? Well, you raise an interesting point about process, and um, I'm not a, a legislative scholars, so I'd defer to others to sort of speak about the most appropriate way to, for, um, uh, you know, the majority in Congress to pursue their agenda. Um, but I think it's, it's if we sort of step back, it's pretty clear that um, a lot of Americans feel that the country is not on the right track, that income levels have not risen in proportion to what seems to be national prosperity. And so I think that this is an attempt to, to right-size the ship, to make sure that more Americans, our working-class and middle-class Americans, are, are really um, at the forefront of, of what the federal government is trying to do by making, I think, now historic investments in infrastructure. I hear you. But I live in a red state, and I try to be very much attuned to red state concerns. And, and you say there's a felt need to address the wild inequality of wealth and access to the fruits of life uh, that has been growing over the past few decades. And I certainly agree with you. I think the problem of the few and the many uh, is probably more acute now than it was during the Gilded Age. It may be more acute now than it has ever been in American history. But on the other side, I hear conservatives and, and Republicans and red state people um, being extremely discontented with, they, with what they take to be the trajectory of the country because they want to be able to address these questions piecemeal. They might agree with 20% or 40% or even 70% of what's in this omnibus bill, but there are things that they find 
uh, questionable or even offensive to them. And so this doesn't exactly build a national new consensus. It may in the end, 10, 15 years from now, make America a much better country because we will have addressed some issues that have been sleeping for a long time. But if this doesn't bring on anything like bipartisan support or consensus, doesn't it uh, have the danger of, of continuing to divide the country in this kind of um, alarming way? I read a pretty alarming uh, statistic this week, which is that the middle 60% of the country now has less wealth than the top 1%, which is a pretty staggering statistic, which means, I think, then, that a lot of people are being left out. And that's where a lot of the discontent in red states and blue states is originating um, from, I think, this this feeling of being left behind. And I think I, I understand your your point about piecemeal, but I think you know there's a legislative reality here, which is that most administrations have one or two bites at the apple to get stuff done, especially in this highly polarized day and age. You know, there are lots of different political dynamics at play, and a president only has so much political capital to expend. Um, and I think that, you know, that really is a, a finite resource for presidents as, as President Biden's sort of approval ratings have shown. And so to do a piecemeal, I think, would be to sort of sacrifice achieving much of anything. And look, the incentive structure right now on Capitol Hill and in legislatures around the country is not to compromise. Let's go back to your initial question, Clay, which was, how would Jefferson react to all of this? And what Bo is talking about is a real inequality of income. Jefferson witnessed that in France. In fact, you're the one who educated me about that. That inequality of the middle class, historically, that leads to the downfall of nations, doesn't it? It can. Um, what's amazing in American history, and I will be interested in Bo's response to this, is how we've been able to fend that off. In other words, the the obscene inequality of access to wealth and, and opportunity and the fruits of life in America would have probably produced a social revolution or maybe an armed revolution in other countries. And so the, the, the perplexity is why doesn't that happen here? And I think there are several reasons for that. I'll illuminate them really quickly. Number one, we're so wealthy. We're a nation of you know really vast, unprecedented wealth. The pie is big enough and keeps growing so that you can just dribble down enough to the masses and the middle class that they bite their tongue and, and accept it. This, the second reason is that in America, there has been an ethos from the beginning that I might just get fabulously rich. I might win the lottery. And the third reason is related to the first, which is that our resource base here, we have land, we have uh, incredible mineral wealth, we have one of the greatest um, watersheds in the world, the the Missouri-Mississippi River system that produces stunningly productive agriculture. And so the resource base in America has always suggested possible opportunity. You can't find that opportunity in Italy. You can't find that opportunity in France because the land has been deeded out for millennia and there's nothing new to exploit. And so in America, we have been able to 
quiet discontent and even to buy off discontent in a way that I think is staggering, certainly to any Marxist, but also to any economic historian. What say you, Bo? <laughs> well, actually, I was going to ask you a, a question, Clay, which is, I guess the last time we had such stark income inequality was during the Gilded Age. Yes. Which then in part led rise to the progressive movement. Is that a fair thing to say? Yes. And do you see something similar to that, um, the sort of farther reaches of the Democratic Party now? Do you see that as, as a potential avenue to channel uh, people's discontent? Yes, I do, but I don't think it's going to work this time. First of all, we're fractured. Everybody has their own network, essentially. Here's what strikes me. After the Gilded Age, we produced populism, uh, and in places like North Dakota, radical movements like the Nonpartisan League, the Socialist Party gained more votes in 1912 than it ever has before or since in the history of the country. The trade union movement was really a powerful and threatening force in the age of uh, William McKinley and Theodore Roosevelt. And now fast forward to today. Today's, and I'm using air quotes here, populism is a strange kind of right-wing, give me back my America, don't let this country become a white minority country kind of populism. And it really isn't populism at all. It's some sort of a very low-level quasi-fascist reaction to modernity. But I don't see at the moment that this new much vaunted progressive era is coming. I think that the, the the Democrats on the left really want it. And I do think that a new progressive era would be extremely good for the country. Goodness, Bo, I just, I, I, I called to have us wish each other a happy holiday <laughs> season. And, and I've taken the two of you to the end of the Republic. I know that you have some important meetings to go to this morning, and I'm so grateful that you took a few minutes to talk to us, but I will give you the last word, sir. Oh, you're very kind. Well, it's, it's just, it's always refreshing to both listen to you all and then a great joy to speak with you. Um, I wish you both, and of course, all of uh, the Thomas Jefferson Hour listeners, a very peaceful and meaningful Thanksgiving, and I hope that we can all approach uh, our dining room tables with a measure of goodwill um, and hopefully a little less politics uh, this Thanksgiving. Bo, stay strong, stay healthy, and uh, keep talking to us, will you? Hey, you all do the same. We'll, we'll talk to you soon. All right. Thanks much. Bye-bye. Okay. Thank you. Bye-bye. We're going to take a short break, but we will return to talk to Pat Brodowski, the former head gardener at Monticello, in just a moment. You're listening to... The Thomas Jefferson Hour.
Welcome back to this special edition of the Thomas Jefferson Hour. It's a holiday edition in which we're talking to some of our closest friends and correspondents from around the country. David Swenson, the semi-permanent guest host of the Thomas Jefferson Hour. We love to talk to Bo. Um, a couple of things I want your your reflections on. Number one, he, he wasn't buying the Jeffersonian critique of a giant omnibus bill of more than $2 trillion. He's a Democrat, of course, and he's an Obamaite and a progressive. And so his view is, we get one shot at this, we'd better take it. And we won't really worry too much about the niceties of the, of the, of the process. And secondly, uh, I think he believes that addressing this fundamental question of income equality in the United States is so important that it's worth pressuring and distorting the traditional process in order to achieve something along those lines. What do you think? Well, you know, I go back to what I said, which is the thing that you taught me about, and then I delved into it farther, which was when Jefferson met this peasant woman in in France and how affected he was by that. He wrote about it. It would be easy to just say, well, Jefferson would say no to all of this because that's his philosophy of government. But at the same time, he was so affected by this, and he would certainly recognize this out-of-control distribution of wealth in, in America today. And isn't that what government is for, is to look out for all of us and put policies in place that, that uh, ensure the future of the republic? Yes, of course. Uh, the only thing I can say to that is that Jefferson had a really naive view of this, that if you want a bridge um, across the Potomac, uh, you have a bill for a bridge across the Potomac. And then if you want a better school system in Norfolk, you have a bill for a better school system in Norfolk, and that each one is tied to a, a specific amount of money. People understand how it's tied to that project and no other. They vote on this as a discrete budget element. Um, Jefferson wanted it to be that clean, tidy, you know, a, a skinny bill on every subject so that you as a citizen could say, oh, wow, that new bridge across the Missouri here in Bismarck, North Dakota, is going to cost $60 million. That means my taxes are going to go up by $800 for the next three years. I better really think about whether we need that new bridge. And when you create legislation the way both parties do now, but in this case particularly the Democrats in 2021, uh, you throw so many things into this that A, you can't see all the things that are in it, and B, there's no way you can really make the cost analysis that taxpayers really need to be able to make to decide how they want to spend their hard-earned money. So I get it. This is now. That was then. Our politics are so distorted now that I do believe you you take it while you can if you can get it. But I think it would be very unsettling for Jefferson. He would agree on the problem, uh, but I don't think that he would agree on the process of addressing that problem. Well, that we'll never know, obviously, but it's always an interesting discussion. And I come back to that 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 movie line of uh, I always thought the world is what we make it, and I guess I think government is is what we make it because we are the government. And thank goodness for that. Shall we talk to Pat? Yes, let's change the subject from uh, the political paralysis and the and and the issues of our time and talk to our dear friend, the former chief gardener at Monticello, someone who has uh, been extremely generous to both of us and taught us a good deal about agriculture and gardening. A longtime friend of the Thomas Jefferson Hour. For many years, you were the head gardener at Monticello. You are recently retired. I got a text from you not too long ago about a 
I think was a tailgate contest at the Montpelier steeplechase and you won. Can you fill us in on that? It was, it was marvelous. We have a team and uh, there's basically three of us that plan ahead. And then we invite about 25 closest friends and we have a, a big potluck. And this year it was a British theme. And so we um, had foods that related to uh, famous British uh, people like Queen Victoria. We had uh, an outdoor table that, for like seated for like 20 people with flowers and uh, linen napkins. We had a breakfast brunch table with a spouting fountain of gold flowers and lots of fine drinks and little pastries. And then we had a main main meal with lots of uh, pots over sterno of stews. And we had a pie. We had the haddock, the Finian, Finian, uh, whatever that was, haddock uh, soup recipe that Queen Victoria liked. We had a lot of uh, Scottish and English dishes. So what happened is they have a chef uh, or a cadre of chefs that come around and look at what you are putting on for your for your tailgate party during the races. And Janae Jenkins it was one of the chefs um, who was the judge. And so she's uh, next to me here, and we are at the inn at Meander, which apparently was frequented by Jefferson, not as an inn that back then. Um, our prize was to come here and stay at the inn. So then I went and said, hey, Janae, how about uh, telling us some some more about this inn? So that's how this came to be. Well, wonderful. And uh, you, so you, you got to spend time at Montpelier, and now you're spending time at the inn. And uh, Janae, welcome to the Thomas Jefferson Hour. I'm sure Clay has some questions for you. Hello. Thank you. Nice to talk to you. Welcome, both of you, to the Jefferson Hour. We miss you, Pat. Glad to meet you. Janae. So, Pat, did you say John Evelyn, the 17th century British antiquarian? Oh, yes. He, he wrote a huge, um, well, his plan was to write everything he knew about horticulture, everything um, available about horticulture in his life. Didn't quite get through it, but there was uh, a supplement called Acetaria, um, a discourse on salads. And he talks about making that chopped kale salad rubbed with olive oil and salt that is so popular today. And so I just love telling people this is actually from, um, I don't know, 1659 or so. That's fantastic. Um, I've studied... Uh, John Aubrey and John Evelyn. Evelyn was a great diarist. Among other things, he described the Great Fire of London in the 1660s. Uh, have you ever, Pat, read uh, Isaac Walton's The Complete Angler? Oh, no, but that's on my list. You must, because he is also um, prone to talk about salads, which really were a big deal in the 17th century, and then they kind of dropped out until quite recently. But he says one of the greatest things I've ever read. He's talking about strawberries. And uh, Isaac Walton says, doubtless God could have made a better berry, but doubtless he never did. <laughs> and I think John Jefferson probably felt the same way because he had, I think, uh, 10 varieties of strawberries. And I've been trying to track them down now. And uh, some of them have gone out of um, existence and you have to like rebreed them. So it was one of my goals. That's why we ran around in California looking for the chili strawberry. But um, I had no luck growing it here in Virginia. It just doesn't like the climate. I recall that that bizarre quest we made in um, on the Monterey Peninsula looking for exactly what you had in mind and didn't quite achieve it. <laughs> tell me tell me what's happened to the strawberry. When I buy them in the store, they're just a woody, awful thing that tastes more like a turnip than a strawberry. 
Yeah, well, they picked them too green or or whatever. So, you know, I did meet some people up at Cornell who are breeding really fine strawberries that um, they can harvest in October and that are very, very sweet. So there's a lot of um, cultivation going on. You know, part of the strawberry thing is there's too much sprays applied. And so people are working hard to get a better strawberry um, for us, you know, in modern day. A couple of years ago, we did a program with a man who is trying to bring back the tomato. Uh, but not just the tomato, a commercially viable and, and, and transportable tomato, which is not as easy as you think. And it just struck me, as does this conversation. Here we are, the wealthiest country in the history of the world, with access unprecedented in history to all, everything that life can afford. You know, we can ship things from China to the U.S. We can ship things from South America, from Saudi Arabia. And, and why is it, Pat? that we American consumers are willing to eat bad tomatoes, bad strawberries, etc. Well, you've hit right on it. It's the shipping. If you have to be able to ship something and not have it bruise. And so if you want to have a perfectly ripe strawberry, you better go back out in your backyard and pick it because you won't be able to transport that on a ship from China. It will have to be green and then, um, you know, that uh, apply ethylene to it to ripen them up. And um, no, it's like, it's the, demand of having things available every season of the year rather than seasonal and regional. And we really need to get back to the seasonal regional focus. You're a wonderful and I think understated exemplar of this movement, this movement to know your food, to know where it was produced, to uh, bring it locally if possible, uh, to prefer taste, uh, to shelf life, to uh, reduce or eliminate uh, herbicides, fertilizers, and pesticides. And here's my question. I know this exists as a movement in the country, but it's still a relatively small thing. The average consumer at this moment is at a supermarket uh, buying stuff not knowing where it came from and or at Walmart or whatever. Uh, do you see in your lifetime or your daughter's lifetime the U.S. getting more serious and this not being an interesting minority movement, but becoming a new way of seeing our food supply. In my lifetime, I've seen a lot of change, and I bet you have too, because in my lifetime, uh, we moved from like having these hippie co-ops to uh, farmers markets everywhere that are really nice. And the CSA movement is a community-supported agriculture where families sign up to have you know, their regional food um, available every week. It's it's really um, amazing. And the amount of organic produce and um, even though some of that um, regulations and signage may be incorrect, at least it's much, much better than when I was a kid going to the grocery store. Um, I grew up in a family that we grew most of our food. It wasn't a lot purchased. Um, but today, um, I think more is available if you search for it, if you demand for it. And even Walmart has organic produce um here and there so even walmart uh, <laughs> i i want to i want to pull us back to this award this contest that you won and and this new friend of yours that you've brought along to converse with us and so janae can you tell us a little bit about yourself and and tell us about the jeffersonian connection at, at the inn at meander I am the head chef here at Meander, and we have a bed and breakfast that 
has 11 guest rooms and a tavern open to both the public and our end guests. Um, we have tried to keep it as colonial and historical as possible. Um, and you can tell that in the different architecture and um, bumps and bruises that the house does have, but yet the elegance and the atmosphere. Yes, the atmosphere. And it has a lot of influential architectural pieces from Thomas Jefferson. The founder of the home was Colonel uh, Joshua Fry, and his son was Henry Fry. And Thomas Jefferson was born when Henry Fry is five years old. What I think is really interesting is Joshua Fry, who's Henry's dad, and Peter Jefferson, who is Thomas Jefferson's dad, they were, um, they both worked together very closely for many years. They were really close friends and they were doing surveying work together. And together they made that famous um, uh, Fry Jefferson map of Virginia. And so it would, uh, it's um, old, an old family friendship that developed from the dads to the sons. And so Jefferson would stop here at, at Henry's house, this which is now the inn. I don't think it was an inn when, when they were friends. No, it was not. Yeah. It was um, a private home, and it was called Elam at the time. So Joshua Fry and, Jeffers, and Jefferson's father, Peter, spent a lot of time in the western part of Virginia, but they also mapped the dividing line between North Carolina. So what's and really Virginia. fascinating is this is in Orange County, Virginia, and the county was founded in 1734 when William the Fourth of Orange marries Anna of Hanover. That at that time Orange County was founded, and it was to provide um, a means of saying the British own all of the land from here over to the Mississippi which is huge. And then uh, Joshua Fry and George Washington are sent out to Ohio to kind of establish a fort. And that's when Joshua Fry falls off his horse and has these incredible injuries. But George Washington is his associate, his uh, lieutenant. And that's how come George Washington assumes control of the Virginia forces and actually, you know, later becomes president. So some historians say, oh, Joshua Fry would have been our president. Isn't that fascinating? <laughs> right, right. That well, my ears perked up at at was it William of Orange? Yes, uh, because I happen to be a descendant of William, Prince of Orange. That's the same guy. Would I be welcome at the inn then? Oh, of course. Oh, maybe Noted. a discount. Yeah, red carpet. <laughs> <laughs> David, how do we know this? Know what? That you're descendant from William, the Prince of Orange. I have the papers. I'll show them to you. He has the finesse. Just obvious. <laughs> and so uh, legend has it that Anna was not much of a catch. And she was a little bit um, heavy and not, you know, she wasn't a beauty. And so she's presented at court with William. And they said, will you marry William the Fourth? And she said, I would marry him even if he were a baboon. <laughs> Um, well, the inn at Meander sounds like a fascinating place, and it's it's just north of Montpelier, right? Yes, so we are um, eight miles north of the town of Orange, Virginia, and we're on the border of Madison and Culpeper. And you can reach us at inn at meander.com. So I-N-N at meander.com. 
Excellent. He would take Jefferson about four days from Monticello to Washington, and he would stay at Montpelier a lot. He'd go to Orange, and then from here he'd go north to, I think, in the Culpeper area. But he would pass by Henry's house, and there's a couple of letters in 1804 in which he's stopping by to drop off a book. Um, they um, were talking about religious ideas together. Speaking of Monticello, Pat, how long were you there, and how long have you been retired now? I was there almost 12 years. It would have been four months, four months short of 12 years. And um, so I retired um, at the like 1st of January and it's been great. <laughs> well, you strike me as the kind of person who will always be busy with something. Listen, we called because it's Thanksgiving week as we're recording this. And before we say goodbye to you, do you have any holiday season wishes for, for our listeners? Well, I hope everyone has a chance to come to a cozy inn like this one. It's just uh, so heartwarming to be here next to the fire. Um, it's just uh, the perfect place to be for Thanksgiving. Kind of gives you that connection to the past. And, you know, you remember all the people that have passed through here and, you know, in friendship. It's really, and so I hope everyone has that sense of friendship and, uh, and well-being during Thanksgiving. So, Pat, um, we need your help. It was a drought here this year. I think David did yeah. better than I did, but um, but we didn't have superlative gardens, and I had a relatively miserable garden. I know Jefferson wrote that famous letter about how one species compensates for the loss of another and one year is better than the next, but give us some sense of optimism. This was a disheartening year for gardening. I think in Maryland, they had uh, more than enough rain. All the gardens there that I helped with were really beautiful and my own garden was was pretty great so someone will have you know an abundance while someone else does not and you can just um send seeds to each other and you know just start again um jefferson would manure things he really hoped that heavy fertilization would overcome you know disasters so you have our address send seeds um send send produce send send indigo send wool send yarn uh, send all the things that you do. Are you weaving now? No, but you do. I'm teaching a natural dye courses next year, two of them for the Maryland Sheep and Wool Festival. So, and that's pretty fascinating. I've got some books from the 1800s to read. I'll never forget when we were together heading towards the Outer Banks and you described to me the need for pans of urine to cure indigo or something. <laughs> You're correct. See, I taught you well. That's all I remember. Pat, thanks so much for coming in. Janae, really good to meet you. It sounds like you've got a dream job, too. Thank you. I really enjoy it. We have a beautiful place to be at, so thank you. The Inn at Meander. Happy holidays, guys. We're going to take a short break, but we'll be back in just a moment. You're listening to The Thomas Jefferson Hour.
Welcome back to the special holiday edition of the Thomas Jefferson Hour. We're checking in with some of our favorite people around the country, correspondents who have been on the Jefferson Hour on a periodic basis over the last few years. And of course, we could not do that without checking in with Bradford Chrysler of Nashville, Tennessee, songwriter, man about town, artist and art collector, uh, aficionado of miniature paintings, and so much more. Hello, Chrysler. Hello, my friends. How are you? For people who don't know who you are, Brad, because it has been a while since we've talked to you, um, you, you've talked about how you pulled back and retired somewhat from the music industry, although I know that that never completely happens. For people who don't know you, you wrote a number of hits, Sweet Southern Comfort. Uh, that was the most performed song of, of uh, 2007. You got a, uh, an award for that. But then you moved into Truman B. Chrysler Fine Portrait Miniatures. And you not only do miniatures, I am looking now at a uh, wonderful portrait of John Adams, which I sent, I think you sent me for inspiration. And it worked. Yeah. It worked. <laughs> it worked. <laughs> Yeah, well, I could feel you leaning toward the Adam's Eye world. And, uh, I just... Well, somebody on this show's got to do that, you know? <laughs> well, yeah, and that, thanks uh, for reminding me, David, that I spent 30 years as a uh, professional songwriter, producer. I'm, as you guys know, I'm from Alabama, from Muscle Shoals, and uh, I just had a great career. But the thing we all love about Jefferson and, and the reason I've always connected to Jefferson, he's a five on the Enneagram, which means he is uh, what's known as the investigator. He is endlessly curious about the world around him and, uh, and it isn't just satisfied, was never satisfied with being passively or nominally involved in the subject. He voraciously surrounded it and consumed it and he he was as we know a, a true renaissance man in the american sense and was uh, able to hold conversations uh, about so many different topics that is something i try to model my life after in fact it comes intuitively those who are of us who are wired that way just can't help be that way and uh, i feel like jefferson was a uh, the perfect model for that, the perfect embodiment of the curious um, enlightenment figure. Uh, that's why I love him. That has kind of been, you know, something I've taken seriously in my life. And because of that, I was able to move into this, um, you know, really quirky field of 18th century uh, and early 19th century American portrait miniatures. Uh, and it has become, you know, a passion of mine. You know, portraits and art and antiques in general, you know, tend to get lost through the generations, their importance. And uh, that, that's been a, a passion that's been both fun and lucrative. And I continue to, to be involved in that. I still do lots of music every single day. I get up and walk into the studio and turn stuff on and I'm just kind of amazed by the possibilities, uh, the ability to make music that I don't owe anyone. Uh, that, you know, is not for another artist or a project, just music to be made simply for the purpose of getting better at it. And that's something I've kind of rediscovered in my retirement. And uh, I love, love doing it. I create music every day. 
You got to be careful about that word retirement. You're pretty young for that, Brad. <laughs> well, it's uh, retirement from commercial music business is what I you know I'm referring to. Obviously, I've hopefully many years to to discover and and uh, become knowledgeable about thing other things I'm passionate about and continue to uh, to study and be fascinated by the. The American Sphinx, Thomas Jefferson. Well, there you go. How Jeffersonian are you? you? You're doing something you have a passion for with no consideration about whether or not there's a profit in it. <laughs> That's right. I'm not buying this sort of struggling artist, but apropos of Jefferson as Renaissance man, Brad, I have a book in front of me called The Polymath, A Cultural History from Leonardo da Vinci to Susan Sontag. It's by Peter Burke, The Polymath. And in the index... Jefferson is in it in a big way, of course, but John Adams isn't in it, and George Washington isn't in it, and James Madison isn't in it, and James Monroe isn't in it, and Thomas Paine isn't in it, uh, and they're all great people, but Jefferson is our polymath. Jefferson is America's great um, exemplar of lifelong curiosity, a thirst to know things in every possible direction a belief that knowledge is is valuable for its own sake. It doesn't have to be uh, fungible. It doesn't have to have immediate application. You know, in his last days when he's dying in 1826, uh, he's still reading Thucydides in the original Greek. Um, I mean, that indefatigable curiosity is so important to our understanding of Jefferson. And I want to ask you a question um, pertaining to it. As you know, Jefferson is now so tightly locked into the problems of race, uh, richly deserved, um, his, um, the criticism of Jefferson, but he's so tightly now locked into current events and constitutional questions and the problem of race that at times we forget that he's America's Leonardo. And to do that is really to do a disservice to what he really represents, isn't it? I, I believe that personally, you know, um, and um, you you guys know part of my passion for Jefferson and curiosity about him is his character and the fact that he does have this paradoxical, uh, problematic character. Uh, and I, I believe, maybe unlike you guys, uh, that that is a product of the failed part of the Enlightenment, the, the part that kind of allows this compartmentalization of kind of moral philosophy and kind of practical living and rational, the rational man, you know, and we're all autonomous, rational figures with no, uh, you know, kind of moral responsibility. I believe that is a flaw of kind of the Enlightenment that was embodied in Jefferson. You know, that compartmentalization that allowed him to write the 35 words and yet never see, you know, clear um, to, 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 uh, to free his slaves. And, and the many other kind of paradoxes that exist in his character, I believe that's important for us to study at length and very deeply because it is our own character. Uh, and that has never been more clear than our present moment, that there are these paradoxes that exist that are almost exclusive and inherent to the American experience. 
And if we're ever going to get anywhere, uh, I think we have to be honest about those those flaws and paradoxes and compartmentalizations that have some very dangerous and negative in in games. Uh, and and I believe that not not only should we not be jettisoning Jefferson from public discourse and observation, we should be enhancing it because in doing so, we are understanding more. Uh, clearly and deeply kind of the roots of some of the problems that we're having in our culture now. That's my take. I couldn't agree more. That was brilliantly said. Um, I think you, you, you nailed it. You know, what I hear you saying, and tell me if I'm paraphrasing it correctly, that of course it's interesting and important to examine these questions of paradox and inconsistency and unresolved enlightenment energies in Jefferson. But it's even more important that we realize that we are the legacy of that same paradoxical enlightenment, and we have not yet fully worked out these inconsistencies in the American dream and in American ideals. And and there's no way we're going to be able to duck this forever, although we've been pretty successful at it through the course of our history. But now more than ever, we need really to dig in and look at the founding generations and to try to tease out what they got right, what they were blind to, what they got wrong, what they got profoundly wrong, and and not only to realize that we're the, the legacy and the children of that era, but that we there's unresolved revolutionary business ahead. That is exactly it, my friend. And and um, I, like you, am no apologist for Jefferson. Uh, in fact, I'm you know I'm I'm troubled by that character, but no more troubled than I am my own character. And uh, I think if if we're ever going to understand ourselves and our unique place in the world uh, kind of as a nation and the DNA of the nation, uh, we have to grapple with and, and understand, you know, this, uh, this paradoxical genius. Uh, he, he, Jefferson, you know, with some, with some other notable exceptions, you know, Jack Kennedy and, and people who are other political figures, Jefferson to me is the perfect example of the best that we can be and the worst we can be in the same person. Uh, and that's what makes him so mysterious, but that's also what makes him so relevant. Let me ask you one last question here, Brad. Uh, and I don't mean this to be um, irreverent at all, uh, but I think my own view is that country music um, sort of um, expresses the zeitgeist, sort of expresses what's going on in the country more directly than pop music does, that somehow country music uh, hones in on what's going on in much of America. So my question is this. I would expect now, thanks to the pandemic, that there will be a body of country Western music that is pandemic related, where there's talk about sheltering and talk about masks and talk about uh, working from home and so on. Is that true? Oh, my friend, how I wish it were. (laughs) Unfortunately, uh, uh, commercial country music now has become kind of inseparable from uh, American pop music. Uh, Part of it has been because of kind of this consolidation of music as a commodity, because of the internet, because of the, there are no more barriers to kind of distribution, just like there is in all publishing. You know, one can make a record in their bedroom on a laptop and overnight almost it could become, you know, a worldwide success. 
And because of that, kind of the introspective kind of singer-songwriter prophet model that used to kind of permeate the ethos of music that was made here in Nashville is really no longer uh, a thing. And part, part of that is maybe the natural uh, and inevitable evolution of the music business in general. But uh, it, it's really sad to me because it, music is no longer, and this is true in all formats of music, really. I know there are underground musicians and, you know, there are people making music that is speaking truth, you know, into our cultural moment. But for the most part, music as a art form has kind of uh, abandoned in my view, it's abandoned that, you know, kind of long-held responsibility to, to be prophetic and to be um, kind of the 30,000 feet view of where we are and kind of a mirror uh, to to the populace. And uh, I feel like music as an art form in general has kind of abandoned that responsibility of the last, you know, couple of decades. Will, will that art form recover? you know, that responsibility and more specifically will, you know, the, the format of music that I worked in for so many years, you know, become that voice again. I, I'm not sure. I think that's to be seen. Those, those prophetic voices in art have, still exist uh, and, and different, you know, whether it's, as I know you just saw Hamilton, the musical, uh, if they exist in other, you know, forms of entertainment or art form, uh, uh, you know, for consumption and contemplation. But music is not that uh, anymore, uh, in my view. I take this as a, a sign of great sadness for me, Brad. You know, I, and yeah. I, I, because yeah. I, I, my, my view is maybe a primitive one, but as country music became more mainstream, more sophisticated, blended more with pop culture, it lost much of its deep authenticity. And that, that part of it, which was a little bit on the, unsophisticated side where it really tried to examine the daily uh, work life, transportation life, family life, food life, uh, marital life, romantic life. That whole world of country music seemed to me to be beautifully American and deeply authentic. And what I hear now, although often very fine, um, as I think a dramatic loss i would agree there are there again americana music and kind of uh you know folk and bluegrass music still retain you know, some at least the facade of some of those efforts but you know kind of as a brand and a format and a widely distributed form of music it's kind of uh, become a thing of the past now ain't no place for mini pearl <laughs> it's becoming a little bit of a dark conversation you two there are bright spots out there and and we could take time to to point people to them but unfortunately we are out of time for this week brad so good to speak with you and i i wish you the best and i hope you have a wonderful holiday season and i know that you would wish that to all of our listeners Listen, I, I, I miss talking to you guys. I consider both of you dear friends and mentors, and uh, I'm always still listening every week anxiously. And I do wish all of our listeners, all those you know who uh, have different worldviews and different experiences, I wish everyone uh, happiness and everyone uh, a perspective of gratefulness and thankfulness for, for what we have. 
and uh, I know I'm happy and joyful. My children are home. Uh, you know, we're, we're, we're warm and safe and, and uh, I couldn't be more grateful for uh, family and friendships this season. So Brad, I, I'll think of you, this is being recorded on Thanksgiving week. I'll think of you on Thursday and you you probably all go out into the RV and, and spread yourselves around <laughs> a little bit and have a, have a meal. But is, this is my last question for today. Can there be a Thanksgiving dinner in the South that does not include the word grits? <laughs> I have never had Thanksgiving dinner with grits. I'm not sure what part of the South you're, you experienced or have the view that that's a thing. Uh, How about a waffle? I, no grits. How about a waffle? <laughs> No, no waffles. Where have you been, Clay? <laughs> oh man, I've I've been in Jackson, Mississippi, my friend. And by the way, I saw Minnie Pearl at Ryman Auditorium in the last um, performance there when they closed for what twenty some years. And there's no place in country music now for Minnie Pearl, uh, but she was an extraordinary something. Indeed. So we're talking to Brad Crisler, one of our dearest friends. He came to visit us. He's the only known human being who has been to the undisclosed location of the New Enlightenment Radio Network barn. Well, I thought I thought we took Bo out there too, didn't we? Well, you did, but I I wasn't there, and I'm not even sure that that happened. But I'll tell you this: that oh, you weren't there. Okay. I I don't want to create any kind of causal relationship. But Brad soon went back to Nashville and became a gazillionaire. <laughs> yes, indeed. We'll see you soon. We'll, we'll talk to you in the new year. You guys take care. You too. Best to your family. We'll see you all next week for another important edition of the Thomas Jefferson Hour. The Thomas Jefferson Hour is brought to you each week by Dakota Sky Education. The program is distributed nationally by Prairie Public. President Thomas Jefferson lived from 1743 to 1826, and this program presents his views. President Jefferson is portrayed by the award-winning humanities scholar and author Clay S. Jenkinson. To obtain a copy of this or any show for a $12 donation, please call 701-575-0727. This program is also available online at jeffersonhour.com and on Apple Podcasts. If you'd like to correspond with President Jefferson or submit a question for him to answer on the program, please visit the website at jeffersonhour.com. The Thomas Jefferson Hour is produced at Makoche Recording Studios in Bismarck, North Dakota. Bach Cello Suite No. 3 in C Major by Stephen Swinford. Thank you for listening. Please tune in again next week for another thought-provoking, historically accurate program, Through the Eyes of Thomas Jefferson. Thomas Jefferson.